Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our communities are, they're sick of paying the bill for the conscience of people in Metro. You know, well, we get jack of that every now and then, that every time when we go into the city and we see everyone has to have a car, there's pollution. You go and look at the, you look at all the pollution that's going on and who's the emitters. They're all sitting in, in the cities, but their conscience is being paid for by us. Hello, good people of pods. Welcome to another episode of the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host, and with me in the pod cave this week, he's laughing, is David Little Proud. So hello, David. Hello, good to be with you. Yes. Now, David, of course, is a Queensland Nat and Agriculture Minister, and I've been dying to grab him in here to talk about what is a mutual passion of ours. So Biodiversity stewardship. Exactly. So we're going to have a chat about a program or a pilot that David, in collaboration with Andrew McIntosh from the ANU, is trialling to allow farmers to participate basically in, well, I guess get some recompense for dealing with biodiversity on farm. And anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Why don't you explain it? Yeah, you explain look, what's happening. This, this came to me as an idea I had when I first became Ag Minister in 2017. I'm from Queensland and we had vegetation management laws put in and rightfully there was large-scale tree clearing that shouldn't have happened. And But what happened was that took away a property right. The federal government compensated the state government at the time and the state government just put that money in their pocket and the farmer lost their right to, to be able to manage their land. So there was no compensation for the loss of property right. So what I wanted to look at was how do I, how do I bring the farmer into the solution, to be part of the solution, not only to reward them for, for their stewardship, but also for their carbon abatement. Now, we've got blunt instruments, and I think they are blunt instruments, carbon farming, because what happens is someone just comes in, buys cheap land, particularly in southwest Queensland, might be for $20 an acre, and just locks up and walks away. There's no management. There's no improvement in the buy diversity of the land. In fact, it becomes a, quite a risk in terms of emergency management as well. So there's no management. We get pests and weeds come off it and they spread across the, the landscape and other farmers have to manage it. And we're losing, we're losing families out of these communities. So carbon farming is a, good, is a good model if it's done properly. But what I've tried to do is build on that. So just not have the, the blunt instrument of carbon abatement, but actually find for the first time in the world's history a measurement of improving biodiversity. And then if you can measure it, you can quantify it. 
And so if you can do that, you're not just we don't just reward them for the carbon, but we're in, we're rewarding our farmers for the biodiversity. Yeah, well, let's. I want to ask you about measurement in a tick because that's obviously critical to whether this thing is credible or not, right? And uh, we won't bamboozle the listeners with all the technicalities, but I want to I want to jump into that in a minute. But let's just take a step back because obviously it's been a very cluttered landscape in politics at the moment. People may not even be aware of the program that you've launched. So like in 25 words or less, explain to the listeners w- what what is this pilot? What will it do? So, so I want to reward the farmers for the stewardship of their land, for the abatement of carbon, the improvement of their biodiversity, and then be able to put a seal on their product to say that they have the best biodiversity standards in the world and demand a premium in the marketplace. The world has never seen this before. We are leading the world. We've got a window of opportunity to do it. And I'm excited as all hell to make sure we get this through. We've got the money to do it, and ANU have been exceptional. Professor McIntosh has been world-leading on this, and he has guided this all the way through. I came with an idea, and he has just simply put the mechanics behind it. And to be able to measure improvement in biodiversity will open a whole new market. When you think about – we've even talked about – I remember Mm -hmm. at the press club debate before the last election, we talked about the the loss in native species. We did. This is a significant step forward in not just – abating carbon. In fact, if 16.5% of the landscape, agricultural landscape was taken up, agriculture would be at net zero emissions. Mm. That, that is an outstanding outcome, but it also, it doesn't take into account the improvement in biodiversity, the species that return. And what, what Andrew has done with ANU is, is they're giving you the roadmap to do it, to make it easy for the farmer to say, these are the trees you plant, this is the area you do, and all we want to do is simplify the methodology in being able to measure it, take a photo above and have someone cross it, go across it quickly to make sure that there's not huge costs, not huge impediments to, to take this up, but they know if they put particular species of trees there, then it tracks the wildlife back. And, and so this is an easy concept of rejuvenating a lot of the erosion that's been put down gullyways, putting in shelter belts. It's from five hectares up to 200 hectares, this pilot. And we think we've got the science right in the measurement. No one else has done this bar Andrew McIntosh and ANU. So we hold some intellectual property here that could go around the world. We've done it in the laboratory effectively. Now we, we need to roll out these six regions and effectively just have these plantings, measure it, and then prove to the world that this works. And someone like Andrew McIntosh is someone that will be able to measure it. And then we quantify it. When we've got a product like this, you create a market because there are corporates around the world that want want to do something about the environment. Mm. And it's not just about carbon abatement. So we're getting that. It's carbon abatement plus the biodiversity. So think we can do two things with one. That's going to be groundbreaking for Australia to be up to do. And we will get the capital not only from around the world, but hopefully here from Australia. I think this this is where Australian corporate should step up. I'm giving them the avenue to use their social licence for good to support Australian farmers. And let me say, if a farmer takes out 10 15% of their property, what they will get in income, because we're adding biodiversity, effectively is equivalent to them running cattle or sheep over that part of the land. So they're not mm-hmm. losing income. In fact, they're, they're actually stabilising their income base because they have a passive income stream regardless of what comes out of the sky. What about, though, I mean, sort of the percentage as you're saying is, you know, sort of 16% or whatever, if you reserve land for biodiversity, tree planting and other things, is that going to be enough? Because the CSIRO, for example, had some 
sort of modelling around getting to net zero, which another thing we'll get into in a dick, that suggested quite a lot of land in Australia would need to be locked up, in essence, with tree planting and other things in order to you know, meet, meet a target like that. Look, long-winded preamble, which is basically saying, do you think we can do this at scale sufficiently? Because, yeah, do you think we can do it at scale? We can. So what you understand is agriculture manages over 50% of the landscape. So they have a fair role to play in our carbon abatement, but improvement in our biodiversity mm. as well. Mm. So this is this is the opportunity in agriculture is about 13% of emissions, yes. about 76 million tonne. So even at 10%, we just on this program alone, without industry doing anything else, we would get 54 million ton. But at 16.5 percent, we clear the slate, mm-hmm. and then we shouldn't stop in other in other measures that our industries are doing. I mean, sugar is effectively carbon neutral now. They're using biofuels from products to make sure that they, they're working through that. So every agricultural industry is working this. But this is just a, a leapfrog that that actually gets agriculture at the table to participate mm. and gets rewarded because last time. They weren't rewarded. And so that's what I wanted to do, square up the ledger. And at 16.5% of the landscape, that is achievable. That's a that's a fair fair chunk of landscape for primary producers to plant to native species and to effectively lock up. So mm-hmm. that is a fair chunk of their income yep. that you'd be looking at. But the beauty of adding the biodiversity uh, payment to it on top of the carbon means that it actually now becomes viable because just at carbon – You've got to buy some pretty ordinary country and just lock it up and walk away. Mm. This is incentivising farmers right across the country with different landscapes, and and the plantings are going to be to that landscape. So we're not just going to say a tree right across the country. It will be uh, it will be specific to the region. So we're working with the natural resource management groups in each of these catchments and saying what are those trees, and that's what ANU are mm. working through mm. to make sure that they define what the plantings are. So it's even simpler for farmers. They just simply say you these are the quantities of plants that you provide, and then you tell us what you think that's worth and we will pay you a, a, a payment that we think is equivalent in the pilot. Then what we want to do is create a market. Yes, and with a market mechanism, David. Well, Eddie uh, would think we were pay. talking about the car- a carbon price. Well, we are putting a price on biodiversity. <laughs> oh, my God, uh, so imagine. I, I just think it makes sense because the world is changing. And let me tell you, we, we've already seen Microsoft come in and and buy some credits out of New South Wales. That's why I put the challenge out to corporate Australia. This is their opportunity to square the ledger with the Australian public, show their social licence and engage us because we are creating a marketplace that won't just debate the carbon. We're actually going to improve the biodiversity in their own country. So this is where I think we're already seeing, I've been in contact with a number of the banks about this. They're very excited about where we'll go with this. They see the opportunity not just in how they land money to farmers moving on on this, but also there's a lot of investment that wants to come into this, the corporates that want to create a mechanism to put money into into the improvement of biodiversity and carbon. So this is why it's so exciting. This is a world first. When you join the two, this gives a social license to every corporate Australian to say they are not just doing their bit in terms of carbon reduction, they're actually improving the biodiversity of our country and returning native species to areas that have been lost for so long. So this is the this is the this is why it's 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 just well breaking what's happening here and what Andrew McIntosh has been able to put together. We've got some final steps just to to, to tick the boxes to make sure it has the veracity and we can quantify it. Because measuring is critical, exactly. right? You, you don't have a you, product without it. Exactly. Like you, you genuinely don't have a product without it because it won't it won't have credibility and you won't, in terms of creating a market mechanism, creating a product to sell, which is abatement. If people don't believe the abatement's happening, then they won't. 
effectively your your, your uh, carbon price. Did you hear that carbon price over? Uh, it won't actually. It won't work exactly. if people don't trust that the abatement is. You know, well, well, if people think the abatement may not be happening. That's right. So all I've done with Andrew McIntosh is create a widget. And I'm able to value that widget because he has the science that, that can actually value that widget by the improvement in biodiversity from where it is to where it's going to go. And then that then adds, that creates the marketplace. When you have something, a widget of value, you can go to the marketplace and say, is this of value to you? Now, the, the market is screaming. Corporate Australia is looking to place their dollars. So is the international world in terms of placing dollars. So this will be a first in terms of being able to put money into a place that has currency that has integrity, and this is where it was so important to get someone like Andrew McIntosh to do it, to make sure that it had that currency mm, and integrity to the system. Because otherwise, I can't go to the market. Otherwise, what would happen is the Australian taxpayer would have to put liquidity into the market, yeah. when I don't need to. If I create a widget that has integrity and currency, it has value, then and I can get people like Andrew McIntosh to say, yes, it does, then I can go to the marketplace and say, you can you can pay for this and you can actually reward the farmers, not just for the carbon abatement, but this biodiversity. Now, it sounds awfully like in this conversation, David, that you think agriculture is actually part of the solution for moving to net zero. Well, it always has been. Uh, and and the, only, the only caveat we've always put on that is that we should reward the farmers because I come from Western Queensland and we feel aggrieved. We understand the fact that large land scale clearing had to, had to cease, but when you take a property right away in this country, it should be compensated for. And we just feel aggrieved as country people that we tore, the, we fought the brunt of what happened there. So that's why it had been in the back of my mind for so long is how do I do this and how, how do I shift the dial? of making sure that we have real solutions to these challenges we have, not only here in Australia, but globally. And that's this is this is one of the things where I believe ag can play, not just with the biodiversity stewardship fund, but also in other measures that I think the industry themselves are moving towards. So why are some people in your show saying agriculture has to be carved out of whatever this mechanism, non-existent policy mechanism is that'll that'll take us to net zero? Well, well why, I think what, it, what's happening there. There shouldn't be any more negativity in terms of the cost bo- being borne by the farmer by any any erosion of property right, because that's that's what the premise of what what we are saying happened last time is their property right was eroded. The state governments didn't hand that money back. And I've got to say, that was my mob in Queensland that did that. Now, they put in place a regrowth provision that that is what is fought over every election in Queensland that allows it to ebbs and flows. But they put the money in their pocket and didn't hand that money to the farmers. So that, I've got to say, is where I want to square the ledger and making sure that whatever we do moving forward, they're part of the solution. I think agriculture wants to be part of the solution so long as they, they don't carry the bill again. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, you're obviously from Queensland. What do you think the sentiment is on the ground these days? Because uh, when, look, just rolling back a few weeks when some in your show were having a, you know, incredibly stupid argument about whether or not agriculture should be in or out or whether or not we should get to net zero or not, when that, that was all playing out, one of your colleagues, Darren Chester, said, Look, our our communities are diverse. We need to represent the diversity of our communities. We can't just sort of put on the pantomime smocks and go out there, you know, just doing all that business. Where do you think your community's at with this transition? Well, I think particularly most of mine in Western Queensland has been in drought for eight years. 
uh, and some going into year nine. Mm. So they're at the coalface. So they under, understand exactly what's happening to them and, and how the climate's changing. And, and they're paying the bill every day when they go and see the bank manager. And I used to be one of those bank managers I used to have to go and see. So that, and, and the other thing I think uh, you've got to say is that our communities are somewhat urbanised as well. Mm. So you might find that hard to believe, but I've got the most dispersed electorate in the country. But you know, even in the towns, the, the urban people live in those towns have much of the same aspirations and fears and values of those people living in Melbourne, Sydney, yeah, and larger Boston. centres, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. they're urbanised, but and so they see it. They're probably closer to to where the action is in terms of what farmers can do. So I think you should never turn your back on the opportunities that are there. And while there are some that have divergent views in the National Party, that's that's not a bad thing. But the majority are, are sitting here saying we want a deal. We just don't want us to have to pay the bill again. But I think quite openly, we have an opportunity to really reward and to square the ledger up for those farmers that that paid the bill last time. And this is the opportunity that I wanted to provide. Because what what most Australians want, we've got to get back to first principles. First principles is we all agree we just got to reduce emissions and we want a healthier environment. So let's get back to those principles. How do we do it? Most Australians, whether they be in Warwick or Charleville or we be in Melbourne, they say we just want practical solutions that don't cost us a lot but are meaningful and give us results. Mm. That's really pragmatically, I think, what if you take the noisy extremes from both sides and just get the average Aussie sitting out there trying to make a quid, keep the kids at school, going for a holiday once a year, they want action, they want it to be practical, they want to be sensible, and they want it to work. So why do you think, you know, I'm not asking you to speak for everybody in your party, I'm, I'm genuinely I'm not, but we, we hear, oh, we hear so much bullshit I mean, seriously, let's just call it for what it is. Like we do, we hear so much bullshit. Um, why? Well, look, we all come from, from different backgrounds and beliefs, and, and that's not a bad thing in this place. But invariably, I've only been here four and a half years. But what I find is that normally the sensible solutions come through the end, that normally sanity prevails, common sense prevails. Sometimes it takes a little longer than you'd like. But I think you, if you sat there and, and looked not only in our party room, in all the party rooms, and looked at where we're on the page and where we all want to go, the divergent views are only at, at the narrow narrow degrees. I think everyone has pragmatically said we're on, we're on the pathway. How do we get there? Well, let's, let's actually work through that. Let's be honest with the public about how we get there. Who pays? How do we do it? And what are the opportunities? And that's the big thing, I think, while there'll always be those that, There'll be a minority that always say they don't necessarily agree. That's fine. That's that's healthy. That's a democracy. We should celebrate that. So long as that doesn't become the majority view uh, at takeover uh, from policy policy settings that should take place. And I think there's a pathway for us to do this in a pragmatic, common sense way that doesn't hurt regional Australia like it was last time. But there are still some. Uh, and again, I'm sorry that you know we've got to touch down on this, but uh, but it, it is critical. I know what you're saying, and it's eminently sensible, David, that it's as long as it's, you know, that obviously the parliament has to represent a full spectrum of views. I don't want to cancel people in the parliament who have different views to me. I think it's actually really important mm. that these views get expressed, right? But we know from the history of climate and energy policy in your show particularly that a hostile minority can hold the entire show to ransom in terms of progress. We've seen it. We've seen it on a number of occasions now. 
And there are some in your in the Nationals who are basically saying, look, Morrison can talk all he likes about net zero. He can get out there and be the metropolitan, metropolitan hero about the transition if he wants. But I tell you what, if he does anything actually substantive to drive this transition, we're going to shirt front him. So... <sighs> Like you are, you know, you are in a, a leadership position in your own political party. You know, sometimes you've dabbled with, you've said some things that are incomprehensible to me because I know you are a genuine enthusiast for this transition, hmm. right? So, when are you when are you going to grow up? All of you. <laughs> no, no, I mean that. I'm sorry to be the mother in this conversation, but I mean it. Like, when the when the hell are you people going to grow up? Well, I think that's why the the conversation that we're having now is a mature one, and and one in that is representative of the evolution of our society, particularly those that we represent, those regional and remote. Because you know what. They're sick of paying the bill for the conscience of yeah. people in Metro. Yeah. You know, well, we get jack of that every now and then, that every time when we go into the city and we see everyone has to have a car, there's pollution. You, don't look, at the, you look at all the pollution that's going on and who's the emitters. Mm. They're all sitting in, in the cities, but their conscience is being paid for by us. And, you know, as, as a Nat, you start to jack up about that, and particularly and regional people jack up about that after a while. But this is what I'm saying is they're, they're saying we got, we're paying the bill, but now if we, can, if we can play in the opportunity space, well, yeah, we will listen. Because that's like dealing with anybody with respect. If you deal with them respect and you don't, you don't downtrod them and, and push them down, then invariably they are going to listen. Invariably they are going to work with you. But when you just say, no, we're going to throw this on you, you'll pay the bill because mm. we've got a problem, that... That harkens back to negative That sentiment. creates a culture. Yeah. It creates a culture that can, that can only be fixed with time, change with leadership, maturity, and conversation. And, and that's the thing is there's a conversation that needs to happen. It needs to happen in, in a mature way and making sure that there's honesty in it. Because there's a lot of platitudes going on mm. with a lot of things. And this is the thing is that while no one always agrees with me, I don't like to get into platitudes. I'd rather just say, these are the facts. This is what we can do is so we can't. If I can't do it, I'll tell you to face. I'll just say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Mm. But if I believe in something and we can deliver it, I think we can deliver it. And that's why I've got a passion for this. I think we can deliver it. I think we can be world-leading. Uh, we can change not only our, our landscape around what we're doing with carbon abatement, but we can actually change the landscape for the better. Mm. So it's sort of like, but just getting back to that sentiment question, right? Like, what's it like at home? Do you feel in this that it's something you have to lead? And, and I mean, of course it is, really. It's like any big policy debate, right? But, it, but we're, like, I accept your point that farmers think that they've paid a price for environmentalism that feels to them to be too high, right? But do you think that that sort of baseline is changing? Because my perception is that that baseline is starting to shift, that because of the combination of they can see opportunity in terms of income streams from abatement and other things, and also, as you say, because they're on the front line of the never-ending bloody drought, that sentiment genuinely is shifting in the regions. But, I, I mean, I grew up in the regions. I grew up in Tamworth, but I'm a long way from that now. So I, I don't have any real organic sense of where the centre of gravity is yeah, there. So, so it's changing. And this is an important issue. It's not the highest issue, and I think any party's polling will tell you this. For, for people in the regions, it's not their highest issue, but it's in their top ten. 
it's something they're thinking about. It's in the back of their minds. What are we doing? How are we doing it? Are we are we actually making some meaningful change? So that's where I think it's it's in their minds, but it's not it's not the issue that's that's keeping them up at night. But they want to see, and that's why I say before, what they want to see is some some common sense solutions, some practical solutions that actually work. They don't mm-hmm. cost too much, but actually live up to what we expect and what they want. So that's where I think the sentiment is right across regional rural Australia. They see there's a problem. They want us to do something about it. They just want to see that it works, but it doesn't cost too much. And if we can get a few, few dollars out on the side, well, even better. And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, that was why... I've, in 17, when I became Ag Minister, that was the opportunity I saw. It was to square the ledger and make sure that we, we actually have this evolution and transition of, of our regional communities, understanding, participating and being rewarded. Mm. Tell me, is anyone ever going to build a coal plant in Australia? Well, uh, firstly, uh, you need a proponent and secondly, it needs to stack up. So economics will have to have to prove that it can work. Is that um, no? Well, I'll, I'll let the market decide <laughs> as, we, as we've been working and talking so much about markets. Now that we're into market <laughs> mechanisms again, breaking, yeah. breaking. So, yes. so look, that's, that's the practical reality of it. I mean, I, I think what we can do, and I, I've, got to, I, I've got to say that I've got four coal-fired power stations mm. in my life. Well, you've got yeah. a really mixed but I've got gas. energy, energy I've, I've picture. I've got gas. Yeah. I'll have one of the biggest solar farms in the country, one of the biggest wind farms in the country as well. So having a mix is, is, is what we should have. And again, if you get back to first principles about reducing emissions, then even if you can reduce emissions in, in the existing fleet of coal-fired power stations we've got, you can reduce those emissions, then that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, and by that you mean retrofitting existing CCS, a carbon yeah. capture storage. Yeah. In fact, one of, the, yeah. one of the power stations in my electorate is doing that and they believe that – and working – they're doing a lot with the US now because obviously Biden's changing his landscape on that. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't just demonise coal-fired power stations if we, can, if we can reduce their emissions as well. That's a good thing. So just this is where you've got to take – the, the the religion out of this sometimes and just get back to first principles. Mm-hmm. We want to reduce emissions mm. uh, because we all want cleaner air to, to breathe. Mm. So ultimately, if we can extend the life of a coal-fired power station, how do we keep the base load is probably the question and technology will come with that. And, you know, we're seeing technology advancements in nuclear, in, in small cell technology in the United States and Canada. I think that's an exciting thing, an advancement that we shouldn't be afraid to explore. We shouldn't stand still in looking at technology and opportunities, particularly if it, if it gives us base load and, and, you know, it's safe. And I think we've made those advancements in safe uh, in safety. And then can you, can you reduce your emissions? Well, why wouldn't we look at those types of things? That's the sort of conversation I think as a country we should be mature enough to have. And I think if we take the extremities out of these debates, I think we can start to, to move towards that sensible centre of common sense and conversation about moving forward. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Removing religion from this conversation is paramount at a number of levels. But again, and sorry to make you the spokesman for everybody in your party, but like why? I mean, it's just, again, it's just bullshit, isn't it? Sorry, let's just call it for what it is. Various people trotting about saying, oh, we we need coal, we need high efficiency, low emissions coal because it's the cheapest form of power. I mean, that's, that's just rubbish. Well, the, the market will determine that. And, but the th- problem you've got is baseload. And this is the problem until we crack the code on... on well, it's more dispatchable than the, baseload. Well, the dispatchable. And that's, and that's the challenge we've got with wind and solar. And, and, you know, they've been great investments in my electorate. I'm, I'm not... You know, I'm, I'm happy to have them all. I'm mm. happy to have gas, happy to have coal. And I'd be even happier if it, if it 
retrofitted and reduces its emissions. They should all be in the mix. And, and this is the thing is, that's why I say we shouldn't stand still mm. because the market will move forward and it'll determine where we go in terms of dispatchable power and how we get it and, and how we live up to our national commitments. Those are the types of things that, that will they'll drive us. And eventually that's what happens. That's that's how we've evolved as a country and how society's evolved globally in many respects. So that's what you're seeing. And I think it's the pace that people we, we need to bring on the journey with. Hmm. I've only got a couple of minutes, sadly. This is uh, this has been fun. One more fun question for, for you. you. You'll, get, yeah, you'll, kill me. <laughs> you'll kill me with this. Look, from my vantage point, and I'll, uh, with due respect, take you out of this mix, but from where I sit, the National Party acts like a bunch of angsty teens a lot of the time. It's sort of like, you know, people unhappy about Michael McCormick. Oh, not quite sure. Right. But you won't get on with crafting an alternative if that's where the centre of gravity is. So it's like I've described it in the past as like, the, you know, the most boring telenovela ever, right? You're out there kind of, you know, bitch slapping one another, slamming doors, having tantrums. But I mean, what is going on with you people? I mean, seriously. So, you know... How does this story end, David, this this saga? How does it end? Well, it's been going for 101 years, and I suspect <laughs> it'll go on for another 101 years, uh, probably not with obviously the same characters. We're 21 individuals. That's effectively what the Nats are. They come from all parts of the country representing very unique communities, and the people that come into this building are very passionate about their communities. And if sometimes that doesn't align with a community in another state or another region, and so therefore there can be divergent views sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but that's a good yeah. thing, yeah. you know. And, and the reality is, leadership is never easy. And you know, I think ultimately we're conservative by nature in terms of making rash decisions around leadership. And I think you know, Michael will be there uh, for as long as he wants. There's no mood. We but we all have a role to play because we're 21 independents. And so what we, we all have our own role and our own leadership role within the party but in our own communities. And I think that ultimately is, is where people don't understand the psychology of the nationals. We might go in there and have a dust up, all 21 of us, but we walk out, have a beer together, and we're, we're still believing one passion, and that's regional Australia. Well, uh, yes, and, and diversity is no bad thing, but these days the National Party, and this hasn't always been the case, certainly in my reporting lifetime, you, are, you guys are more factionalised now than I've ever seen you. So what's that about? Well, ambition. <laughs> Let's be honest. You, you've got to be honest about it. I mean, you're, you're in a place where 21 of us think that we could all be leaders. Let's yes. be honest about it. So, I mean, that's that's what drives not only politics, it drives society, it drives big business, is ambition. And that's not a bad thing sometimes so long as it's kept in check. And ultimately, it's for the betterment of our overall society and our communities we represent. So you've got to call it for what it is. You're heading for an election. Last question, I promise. Poor David. You are heading for an election, if not later this year, then certainly next. There's a school of thought in at least one of your factions that you're not sufficiently, I don't even know if this is a sentence, product differentiated. Like You're not sufficiently different from the Liberals. Uh, this is sort of one of the ongoing critiques about Michael is that he's too me too with the Liberals. You need to be you need to be different. You need to be visibly different. Is that your view? Well, we we need to be transactional with them. I mean, obviously we've had a long partnership, but our values and our beliefs don't always align with the Liberal Party, and that's not a bad thing. So long as again 
our mob don't pay the bill for it. We don't have the consequences of it. And that's why, you know, at times we do need to square up with them. And that's not a bad thing, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, Michael has a different style to me, to Barnaby, to Matt Canavan, to to Bridget McKenzie. Um, They all have different styles, and leadership comes in different forms. And at the moment, you know, the main thing that we've got to worry about is this little pandemic that we're trying to get through. Mm. And you know what? I think self-indulgent politicians beating their chest is not what we want at the moment. What we want is some leadership, and there's some other big issues to resolve here in Canberra pretty quickly. But I think that's what our our electors want, whether they be in regional Australia Australia or right across the country. I lied about it being the last question because you've just put it in my mind. This genuinely <laughs> is the last question. No, no. Well, you've, you've been honest and frank about the dynamics, which I appreciate. Let's be honest and frank. You've said Michael's there because you don't have a culture of doing rash things with the leadership in the Nationals, and that is certainly true. If you did something rash, that would be w- well out of your historical trajectory. Do you want to lead the Nats at some point? Uh, yes, but it's not my time now, and it may never be. And if this is all the political gods have given me, I'm bloody lucky. I mean, I'm just a bloke from Western Queensland with a year 12 education that's sitting at the biggest boardroom in the country and I've got to pinch myself. But I don't want to miss the opportunity of making a difference for my people. And if the opportunity comes up in the future and it's my time, well, it's my time. But you take what you're given and you work bloody hard. Thank you very much for joining us, David. I appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show. Thanks to Hannah Izzard, who cuts it. Thank you all you guys for listening. We appreciate it. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of feedback on this conversation, which is great. And David's present on social media if you want to engage with him about any of the subjects that he's raised, from carbon farming to why is Lynette so angsty, you know where he is. You can track him down. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.